There was a book that came out some time ago by a a social psychologist by the name of Jonathan Haidt. The book was called Righteous Mind. And in this book, he endeavored to prove why, or to answer the question why, fairly good people, fairly well-intentioned people seem to be so divided around things like politics and religion. Now, he's not talking about trolls here. He's talking about people like you and me, how why good people get so divided over things that we feel strongly about. It turns out that it is largely biological. In your brain, everything that you touch, hear, smell, see, everything that comes through you via the five senses has to travel through your body in the form of electrical signals. Those electrical signals make their way through your brain and make a beeline to the front of your brain where you have the capacity to think rationally and logically about stuff, right? Awesome. But before it makes its way to the front of your brain, it first has to make its way through the middle of your brain where your limbic system is. Anyone know what the limbic system does? It feels things. In other words, your brain was designed for you to feel things before you can think rationally about them. Meaning that every thought you have, whether subconscious or unconscious, is processed through your feelings, whether you realize it or not, before it reaches the part of your brain where you can think logically. Your brain was hardwired to give emotions the heads up. That's why it's so hard to have an open discussion with somebody about something that you feel so strongly about. You feel so strongly about. It's because there's something in the way. Somebody say feelings. Good job. That's also why no matter how foolproof your Facebook post with its paragraphs of proofs and evidences seem to not change anybody's mind. Somebody say, because there's something in the way. Humor me today, humor me. That's also why when they respond to you with their foolproof, inarguable apologetics for why you're wrong, you also don't receive from them. Somebody say for the third time, because something's in the way. There you go, come on. Namely, your feelings. Similarly, Paul is saying that when it comes to our connection with God in this text that we just read, there's something in the way. There's something in the way, but it's not just mere emotions. There's something deeper and more core to who we are that is in the way between us and God. I want us to focus in on verse 21, which Shelley just read for us. It says, and you, and Paul is speaking to the church who used to be estranged from God. Now they they have been saved by the power of the gospel. He's speaking to them about their past. If you are not a follower of Jesus or you're not sure if you are or you're thinking about it, he's speaking to you presently. This is the condition of everybody apart from Christ. He's saying, and you who once were alienated, underline this next phrase in your minds or in your Bibles, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. There it is right there. There's something in the way. That, that something is the hostility of your minds. Now, Paul isn't speaking here about merely your thoughts or the ideas that you have in the moment. He's speaking about something much deeper than that. 
when he speaks about the mind, he's speaking about the deepest, the corest uh, orientation of who you are, that which you are pointed towards, that which uh, you find your direction, your true north. He's saying that's what's messed up. In fact, our, our mind, our inner orientation is going in a completely different direction than God. That's what he means when he says hostile in mind. He's not even saying you have some petty disagreements with God. He's saying your entire makeup, the deepest part of who you are, is actually hostile to the things of God. In other words, Paul isn't saying that uh, he's not just poking at our ability to think. He's not... A, he's not uh, insulting our rationality. Rather, he's calling out our rejection. He's not saying we're incompetent in the way that we think. We can be incredibly smart and intelligent and completely reject what we know about God. That's what he's saying. He's saying what he would uh, later say in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, that we have been darkened in our understanding. Uh, what he says in Colossians, he goes to even much greater length to explain. I just want to show this to you in Romans chapter 1, where he says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people, listen to this, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He's not saying you can't think good things that you're not smart or not intelligent. He's saying, based on what you know about God, you have suppressed it. You have outright rejected it. Listen to what he says after this, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to people because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that we are without excuse. What he's saying in that paragraph is it is virtually impossible for a person who breathes to not see some hints of the divine. Uh, It could be stepping out and seeing the panoramic beauty of the sky and the stars and starting to ask those existential questions about where things came from. Paul is saying, uh, all roads lead to God, at least in in that manner of thinking, not all roads lead to God. But when you look at creation, it should drive you to see that this didn't happen by accident. It could be in encounters you've had where you've just been, uh, it couldn't be explained except for by a move of God. Circumstances, our past, things that have happened where we look up and in that moment we're like, I think God exists because of this. When we see the stars, when we see creation, when we see uh, the birth of a baby who's being formed in the womb, and we would look at that and perhaps say that, that doesn't happen by chance. Paul is saying, nobody has an excuse. You've been given enough at this point in your life to look up and to say, God must be real. But here's the problem. Here's what he means in Colossians when he says we're hostile in mind. Verse 21 of Romans chapter one. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Futile meaning it's not working anymore. And their foolish hearts were darkened. You see that? He's not simply poking at our intellect or at our competence in thinking or rational thought. He's saying that we, despite what we know, have outright rejected God. We have chosen, uh, this is the biblical picture of sin, is that we've uh, considered God and we've decided that we want all that God provides without him included. And so we live out of that place. Paul is saying, 
people have hostility in their minds towards God. In other words, uh, though we are made in God's image, we are made for him, which we saw last week, there's something deep down in our core rendering us incompatible with God. Uh, We were made for him. We find our life in him. Our purpose is in him. Our relationships find their, uh, their harmony and sense of peace and shalom in him. And yet the very person, God, that we need, the very source of our lives that we were made for, we find ourselves incompatible with because we can't help but go in a completely different direction. Uh, I think one of the greatest examples of the fallenness of the human soul is found in Ikea furniture, okay? Bear with me now. Have you ever gotten a piece of Ikea furniture? I did it once and never did it again. It was a big old bunk bed for my kids. And we got this piece of Ikea furniture, and it comes in a box like this big, but when you pull it out, it takes over the whole house, right? And as I'm laying out all the stuff for this bed, uh, there's just pieces everywhere and about 16 billion uh, bolts and washers, which are not labeled except by the alphabet. Here's a bag that's just called A. Here's another bag that's called B. Here's a bag that's called C. They're all different, and they go in a specific place. And if you mess up, you're gonna pay the price for the rest of your life. Burbank's too far to drive, so you're stuck with your choices, okay? So I, we're, we're doing this piece of furniture, and after the 16th billion washer and bolt goes in, I have this one leftover, right? And I'm like, I'm at the finish line, and I go to put it in, and it doesn't fit. And I realize that somewhere along the way, I put in the wrong bolt or the wrong screw, But because that space was big enough, it just kind of fit in there. But now I'm on the 16th billion bolt and washer, and I have to find out where that other piece was. I can't just leave it off because the whole thing will fall apart or break. The whole thing is squandered because I have this bolt that is incompatible with the part. And to make things worse, I don't even have the right tools. Ikea provides me with one tool. It's this big a paper-thin wrench that does nothing. This is a picture of a human life without God. You have a picture of what, what, thi- what life could be, a picture perhaps of a bunk bed, how it's supposed to look, the end goal, the end result. Same with us, we're made in the image of God for human flourishing, for love, not only to be given and received from God, but to be given and received with other people. That sense of shalom that the Hebrews often talked about, wholeness, completeness, peace. That is the vision we see on the cardboard of the package. And yet the pieces that we have, namely our own hearts and souls, are incompatible. They don't work. And the only tools that we have available to us, like our human ingenuity, our cash, our relational collateral, our group think, our intellect, simply don't fix the problem. This is the problem of humanity. We don't, we don't fit. And the only tools that we have simply don't help. This is why the gospel is so good. This is why when Paul launches into verse 22, this should make your eyes light up as he says, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh 
by his death. I just want to stop right on that sentence because that word right there, reconciliation or reconciled, is everything you need to know today. It doesn't just mean two people that were having a fight coming together and getting along. It does, it does include that, but it's so much more. It means a wholeness and a harmony brought to two incompatible parties. It means you found the bolt. It's as if somebody came and took that wrong 16th billion uh, bolt that didn't fit and just morphed it into the right shape and peace. Jesus Christ does this. There was something in the way between us and God, but Jesus makes a way to God. And he does it uh, by reconciling us to God. In other words, if, if the problem was we were not oriented towards him, we knew some truth about him, but we were moving in the opposite direction, saying to ourselves, I am a better God over my life than you, so back off. Give me all the blessings, but I want, uh, I want autonomy over my life. Christ solves and heals the human condition by bringing us in a backwards trajectory or a forwards trajectory towards the God that we were made for. But how he does it is pretty stunning. It says that he does it in his body of flesh by his death. Christ heals brokenness through his own brokenness, through his death. You might be asking yourself, in general, about Jesus dying on the cross. How is that a good thing? Why do we celebrate this, you know, on Good Friday leading up to Easter? Why do people talk about the cross so much? Why do we sing weird stuff like about the blood of Jesus? This is very strange. And how in the world is someone else's death a good thing for me? Have you ever thought about that before? Because this would be totally weird if it happened in any other circumstance, right? Can you imagine if you were sharing, pouring out your heart with a friend and you were like, I have been estranged from my son or daughter for 10 years. And I'm your friend, you're telling me this, you're pouring out your heart, and I said, listen, no problem, I got this. I'm gonna die for you. How would you feel about that? Might be like, well, that escalated quickly. No, no, listen, I don't need that, and that's weird, actually. Don't do that. And it wouldn't fix the problem. I would still be estranged from my daughter or my son. And I would add to that loss the loss of my weird friend who's trying to die for me. No, in any other situation, death is simply death. Because we don't have the tools to fix that either. And so there it remains simply as grief and loss. Perhaps you have lost someone recently. Perhaps you're dealing with loss right now. There's nothing redemptive about it except when Jesus steps in on the scene and makes a way. The Bible tells us that the way that he reconciles is through his death. And why is it a different thing when Jesus dies on the cross? And here's why. One, one of the things that we looked at, one of the primary things that we looked at last week was that Jesus isn't an ordinary person. He is God in the flesh, right? He is absolutely God. That's what we looked at uh, in, in Colossians chapter one, when it says in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. You see, you and I, we were made in the image of God. We reflect a little bit of who God is, but Jesus is the image. We're a reflection, but he is the substance. He's not a mimic, he's not a mimic, he's not a mime, he's not a mirror simply, he is God in the flesh. John chapter one tells us that the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. He put on our frame, our flesh, our mind, our brains, he took on our identity and our very nature. 
He is God, but he's also a human being. And if there's anything stranger about Jesus being 100% God, maybe it's the fact that he's also 100% man. This is kind of what Paul is alluding to in that kind of weird and wooden sentence where he says, he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. Because right there, Paul takes a word that he usually uses to describe humanity, flesh. Which doesn't just mean your skin, your flesh, and your bones, literally speaking, it includes that. But it also just refers to your attributes, your characteristics, It refers to your inclinations, your habits, your behaviors. It refers to your nature, what you're like. And when sin has tainted your nature, the flesh takes on this sinful component. That's why the NIV often translates flesh as sinful nature. And so right here in Colossians, Paul tells us that Jesus has taken on a bit of our nature. And yet without sin, he's 100% like us and he's 100% God. You know what this means? He has all the authority and all the power and all of the resources of God because he is God. But because he's a human being, he also is able to perfectly identify with us, to perfectly represent us, to perfectly stand in the gap between one and the other, 100% God and 100% human being. That means his death is unlike any of ours. When we die, there's simply a vacuum in time and space, a loss. When Christ died, his death was vicarious. Vicarious meaning that it was done on behalf of others. It means that he was able to die for our sin as a perfect sacrifice. Here's here's what I mean by by vicarious. Here's, Here's the benefits that we get from Jesus' death. I wanna give you three from Colossians. The first is we get forgiveness. A while back, we read this in Colossians chapter one, verse 14. It says, in Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have forgiveness from our sins. This is good news when there's something between you and another person that's creating hostility. Have you ever experienced that? Maybe in your marriage, maybe in your family, maybe with a coworker or a close friend, something between you that's just making it weird. Something that even if, even if you're not on the outside uh, blasting each other with hostility, there's still something on the inside. It could be as simple as a silent treatment. You ever been in the same room with somebody that you have something against? You're present in the room, but there's just a wall between you? It's called a silent treatment. You don't say anything, but things are not right. Forgiveness of sins is good news because we have done a lot of things that were not right against God. We were the ones hostile in mind that stiff-armed him and decided to take over our own lives, racking up points against us. The good news of the gospel, when Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, another passage of scripture says that he bore our sins upon his body on the cross. Our death can't do that. Jesus can. He takes our sin upon his body. Romans chapter eight then says that that sin was condemned in his body. He takes everything that we've ever done wrong, everything that we've ever done against God and against other people from big to small, and he takes it into his body, that giant burden of humanity's sin, and he destroys it 
so that as the psalmist says, your sin to God has become as far as the east is from the west. How far is the east from the west? Rhetorical question, right? It's far. It's too far to see. It's gone. Jesus Christ washes our sins away. This is incredibly good news for some of you who have been racked down by guilt and shame. You who barely made it to church this morning because all you could think is what you did yesterday, what you did last week, what you've done the last 10 years of your life, what has been given to you by others, what has been done to you by others, the incredible shame that you carry with you has rendered you paralyzed because all you can think is how badly you've screwed up. The good news of the gospel is that in Christ, through his death, your sins have been forgiven. So it might still be in your mind, but it isn't in the mind of God. When he sees you, he does not see your past. And your past may explain you, like I shared a couple weeks ago, but it no longer has to define you. And the, 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 the first steps of the Christian life is then to begin to train ourselves to see ourselves as God sees us. How does he see you, brother and sister? Perfect. You say, well, I, I do not function in perfection, mostly. Doesn't matter. Everything that you've ever done, everything that you will do after today, Jesus Christ has washed away by his blood on the cross. For those of you that have put your faith and trust in him, your past is simply the past. We have forgiveness in his death, but it doesn't stop with forgiveness, which is good news too. Because have you ever experienced forgiveness with someone, but not quite a relationship? Ever experienced like a falling out with somebody, but then things were just always weird? Like if you make an enemy in Santa Barbara and this town is so small, you end up seeing them all the time. And you might have gotten past that original falling out. You might have gotten to a place where you're good with each other, but every time you see each other, you give, you give each other that, that smile. You know what I'm talking about? Where like the, your mouth is exaggerated, but your eyes don't move. Hey. You might have moved past the falling out. There might be forgiveness, but the relationship is never quite the same. But that's not true between us and God. Not only does he wash our sins away, but he also brings us close into his family. Colossians chapter one, verse 13 says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. You're not just in any family, you're in the family of the beloved. That means, yeah, woo. That means... For those of you that came into this building today, not sure if you quite fit in, looking at yourself saying, I don't fit in with all of these people, they're so polished and nice and they smile a lot and they're worshiping God, but if they only saw what I've been through and what I've done to myself and to others, they wouldn't accept me. I'm quirky, I don't have the right personality type to fit in, I'm not loud, I'm not this, I'm not friendly, I'm not outgoing, I'm not a super spiritual, I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not this, I'm not that, and you begin to define yourself by what you think others are projecting onto you. The Bible simply says you have been transferred. You've been transferred to a new family where you are already accepted as the beloved. Hebrews chapter two, verse 11 tells us that the one who is holy, that is Jesus, 
And those who are made holy, that's those who are in Jesus, are of the same family. Therefore, he is not ashamed to call you his brothers and sisters. You might be ashamed. God is not ashamed of you. You have already been transferred before you could ever do anything to deserve that transfer. God has his eyes on you, and he brought you by the grace of God into the fold with his beloved son. This is good news when there's something in you that creates that sense of isolation, like, I don't belong here. Yes, you do. But you don't belong here because you did something to deserve it, but because God loves you. The third thing that we get in Christ's death is freedom. In other words, we're not just forgiven and then brought into a family. We're actually changed. The death of Jesus Christ provides the power for change. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 22, that last verse that we read, it says that he reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He didn't just simply forgive you and then send you out to live the same life that you were living before. He fully accepts you by the grace of God. He washes your sins away, but he also aims to conform you to his image as you rightly were supposed to be. To make you look like the box, the image, the picture that the entire Bible advertises this is what you were made for, to live fully in union with the God of your creation. This is good news when there's something over you that makes you feel helpless. Addictions, bad habits, inclinations, uh, that thought life that you can't seem to control, lust, discouragement, depression, greed, Uh, big things, but also small things, like our inability to not snap at people. Uh, The ways that we project our darkest selves onto other people and treat them that way. And the list goes on and on and on. See, Christ loves you so much that he accepts you just as you are. But he also loves you enough not to leave you the way that you are. His design is to present you before the Father, holy, blameless, and above reproach. How does Christ's death defeat the power of sin in our life? Same way as before, vicariously. When we are in Christ by faith, all the results of his death affect us. I want to read you a passage in Romans 6, uh, verse 7 through 11. This is from the NLT. Listen to this. It says, when we died with Christ... We were set free from the power of sin. I want to stop for a moment and talk about what it means to die with Christ. That means not like you literally die, but that you are identifying with Christ's life. In other words, you who had full autonomy and independence are now dying to your self-referenced way of viewing your own life. You're dying to that. You're saying, I'm giving up control, and I'm identifying with Christ. Continue reading. It says, and since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once, listen, to break the power of sin. 
But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ. Is that not the best thing you've heard all day? Everything that you need to follow Jesus into glory has been provided apart from your hand as a sheer gift of God's grace and mercy, incredible and reckless love. When you are down in the grit of life with a silly tool trying to tinker around, God chuckled probably, and then stepped down into your mess and said, I'm taking over. And he provides everything that you need to live in Christ and for Christ and with Christ. The gospel is not the way that some of us were taught our entire lives. The good news that if you get your life together, then God will accept you into the fold. The gospel, as one poet, Frederick Buechner said, is bad news before it's good news. The bad news is you ain't got the right tools and you're incompatible with God. It's the bad news that makes the good news so good. The good news is that Jesus made a way when there was no way. And he stepped into your business and he got in your face and he said, despite your guilt and shame, despite your lack of appropriate tools, despite the hostility of your mind, despite all of the mistakes that you have ever made and the ones that you will make tomorrow, I'm still good, and I'm still God, and I'm still stepping into your mess to stop this train wreck and to redirect you towards what you were made for. Yeah, you can do that. That's where verse 23 comes in. One author once said uh, that the Christian life, I shared this a couple of weeks ago, the Christian life is not active as though we're doing all of it, nor is it passive like we're doing nothing. It's interactive. Uh, I love that passage in Philippians chapter two where it says that uh, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for God is at work in you to work and to will for his good pleasure. So rather than us taking the wheel, or rather than God taking the wheel while we're sitting in the back, imagine that one time that you, Father, got in your truck and your son uh, sat in your lap, and you took the wheel, and your son put his hands on your fingers and began to participate in what you were doing. This is the Christian life. It's not active, it's not passive. It's interactive, and this is why Paul in verse 23 then says, all of this is your reality. All that you see in Christ is your reality, if indeed you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. In other words, he's saying, This is your reality if it's gripped your heart and you continue in that which has gripped you. How do you continue in the hope of the gospel? I want to give you three words to to wrap your mind and heart around. The gospel, the hope of the gospel is inspiring. 
meaning his death is what provides us hope. And so it would make sense that we would then fill our minds with Christ Jesus. Instead of filling our minds with our past reputation, instead of filling our minds with uh, our desire to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, our plans, our complaints, we begin to coat and fill our minds with him. We get inspired by the hope of the gospel by turning our minds towards him. That's what Paul will say later in chapter three. Set your minds on things above where Christ is. That doesn't just mean think about him from time to time. Set your mind. Remember that, that picture of the mind is your entire orientation. It's a complete switch. You're directing your entire heart and mind, your entire life towards the direction that Jesus is going. It's inspiring. You begin to do that, your entire outlook on life will slowly begin to change. The second thing uh, that we see in the hope of the gospel is that it is effective. His death breaks the power of sin. So how should that cause us to respond? We should depend on him. Moment by moment, day by day, an increasing dependence in our hearts on God as we realize there's absolutely nothing we can do to fix ourselves. And so moment by moment, second by second, we begin to turn and throw ourselves at the mercy of Jesus who is in us and with us and walking by us. The third thing that the hope of the gospel should implant in us is the sense of illustration. The hope of the gospel is illustrative. It gives us a picture of the Christian life. Jesus isn't the only one who dies. And he's not the only one who rises from the dead. He's the firstborn of those who are risen from the dead, meaning he has given us an example to walk in. We identify with his death by dying to our own lives, and we are raised to new life by the power of the Holy Spirit to walk as he walked. We'll talk a lot more about that as the chapters go on, but I want you to hang your coat right here on those three words. The hope of the gospel is inspiring, so fill your mind with Jesus. The hope of the gospel is effective, so learn to depend upon him. The hope of the gospel is illustrative, so we step out and walk as he walked, knowing that we're not alone, we're not powerless, we don't have the sins of our past weighing us down, and we're not by ourselves. I'm going to ask Robert and the rest of the team to come out as we sing, and what I want to do right now is to give you a very physical and visceral way to respond to the hope of the gospel. This is for those who have already made that decision to follow Jesus. You've been born again. And for those of you that maybe you're not sure, you're like, I don't know if I'm a Christian or I think I am. I'm not sure if I am. I'm definitely not. Any of those categories, the the way forward for you is simple. Do you see in Christ all that he declares himself to be? Do you believe it? If you believe it, then the course of action for you is to respond to it in faith. Faith is not just mind work. It is the conviction by which you set out to do something. It's believing something so much that you form your life around it. So if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, follow him today. And if that's a choice that you made today, you also can participate in this practice. But the practice is the Lord's Supper. Communion, as we sometimes call it. We're actually going to do this differently. We've done this once or twice before. We usually have it at the stage 
to administer to others? Are we actually, Gabrielle, are you here? Are people at the stations? Okay, because actually, if you're in the building, can you just come forward right now? Just get ready. I want people to see you. Here's why I want to do this. We're, we're going to receive the gift of God's body and blood from people. We usually do this in an intimate way. You come up by yourself. I love that too. Why I want to do this this way today is because Christianity is an embodied faith. It's not an abstract concept up in the clouds. It's actually something that touches your life. Christ's death affects your body. It affects your mind. It affects your heart. It affects your relationship. It affects your broken marriage. It affects your estranged children. It mends broken hearts and binds up wounds. It heals the discouraged and the depressed. It opens blind eyes. It does everything and it does it down here on the gritty level where we can touch and feel and see things. The kingdom of God, that's the good news of the gospel. The kingdom of God has come near to where you are. And how, how incredible of Jesus that he gave us two things to do and he made them so earthy. So the first thing I want you to do is get wet. Remind yourself that you, you were raised with Christ. The second thing I want you to do is eat food. Get wet and eat food. That is so Santa Barbara. Gospel was made for Santa Barbara. And so he says, take this bread, which is symbolic of my body, break it and eat it. Take of this cup, which is symbolic of the new covenant of blood that you have in me. Why would he do something? I, I, I think it's because Jesus wanted us, wanted us to get a visceral, a visceral visual picture that the gospel touches the human life. And so I want you to come forward, all who are believers, and receive. And you're going to see people. You're going to make eye contact with real people. And you're going to grab that bread and feel it in your palm. And you're going to taste it and drink it. And you're going to hear the gospel proclaimed over you. Before we do, I just want, I want to end with what Jesus said himself as we do this. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out from many for the forgiveness of sins. And so as you do that, I want you to receive the gospel with all five senses so that you can know that Jesus Christ is closer to you than the air in your lungs. And as you do it, I pray that all the things that you came into this room with, the lies of the devil, lies from other people, the lies that you even told yourself this morning would get a little less real as it's replaced by what God says about you. What does he say about you? You're forgiven. You are family. You are free. I pray that as you take that morsel and you drink that cup, you would receive the gift of God found in Jesus Christ, who loves you, he loves you, he loves you, and he gave his life for you. For everyone else, if you need breakthrough in your life, perhaps you can't even receive this, you're still hostile towards it, and you, but you want to, love to pray for you. There will be prayer teams 
uh, at both sides of the room, as well as communion teams come and receive. There's also a communion station at the back of the room for those of you that don't want gluten to come between you and Jesus. Praise God. Whatever you do, I just pray that you would just take some time to slow down because nothing is more important than being in the presence of the living God who made a way for you.